The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant out there. <laughs> Glad you're able to make it tonight. So I usually year with uh, a month or a couple months of talk, uh, starting over from the beginning. And one of the things that if you look into the teachings of the Buddha, one of the things you find is this quality or this uh, spirit of inquiry. And I think, I mean, it's not that it hasn't arisen in the Buddhist tradition, but I think if you look at how the Buddha himself taught, it was uh, a real rejection of dogmatism or this is the way, but really a process of self-discovery or discovering what this mind-body experience is. So last week I began to introduce, like, uh, when we sit down to practice or as we're living our life, it's really useful to hold our formal spiritual practice and then generally our daily life as this process of inquiry. I mean, what else are we doing, you know, in life? We're just like in a race to the end? <laughs> or, you know, who can be the most decorated by the time their life is over or have the most money? It's really, if life is anything, it's this path of inquiry. If nothing else, I think we're all motivated to understand what it is to be alive or what it is to have a mind and body or how it works. I remember reading once, you know, somehow they forgot to give us an owner's manual. <laughs> you know, how it works, this life. How to fix it when it breaks. So we may, might not have an owner's manual, but we do have this capacity to inquire and to look deeply and to listen and to discern how it is. You know, things don't just happen randomly. There's a lawfulness to everything. And the only reason we don't know how things work is because we've been too busy or too distracted to bring that kind of careful attention to just the unfolding of the mind or the unfolding of experience or the unfolding of anything that we are part of. It's like, uh, you know, historians always tell us, if you ever see a pundit on TV who's a historian, you know, they always like are in disbelief how we can repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. Like, doesn't anybody read history? Doesn't anybody pay attention? It doesn't seem like it. Because <laughs> we keep repeating things. And I'm sure you've noticed that in your life, too, how there are these patterns we seem to repeat over and over again. And... At some point in the pattern, we, te we tend, you know, if we're at least partly awake, we tend to recognize, like, I've been here, I've done this before. Now, this is very familiar, this pain or this, you know, quality of mind that I'm in right now. And if we don't recognize this path of inquiry as a possibility, then we're destined to just be swept along with our habit energy. 
And I think it's useful to reflect on that too, because it can it can really motivate us to be interested, to really take this on, this possibility of inquiry. And we can start. It doesn't actually matter where we start, like with what question. It's just the um, going beyond the the arrogance of thinking we know why we're here or we think we know what's going on or what's important. So any authentic questioning takes us out of that arrogant mode. You know, just like even the question as I brought up last Wednesday, you know, well, why am I here tonight? You know, why did I get in my car or get on the bus on a cold night and come to common ground? And Whenever we ask ourselves a question, there's going to be a pat answer. So the thing about inquiry is not to be looking for an answer, but to learn how to hold the question, to kind of just keep the question alive. You know, because it's really, the question is bigger than why did I come to Common Ground on Wednesday night. The question is more like, what's motivating action? whether it's the action of dwelling on a thought or the action of getting myself to common ground or the action of getting myself to the fridge. What is the motivation? What's the driving force in this life, in this mind and body? And, you know, it doesn't take much inquiry to begin to discern that, you know, like we're getting closer to something that's true. It's not an answer. But it's actually we're unpacking something that's true for us right now, which is, you know, there's like this voice or this uh, energy saying, I want to be happy, I want to be safe, or give me happiness, give me safety, I want warmth, I want a wood stove. <laughs> when and I were at uh, the place on Franklin, they had, there's a, I forget the name of it, that wood-burning stove place. Anybody know the Woodland stove, maybe? And uh, they've got one model. It's $20,000 or something. It's this huge, huge soapstone monster of a stove. And <laughs> he was saying, you know, that you get that thing going, and then the, the heat from like a small fire in the morning just radiates. The, the stone holds the heat, just radiates all day long, you know, that wonderful radiation of heat, which is so much better than the kind of forced air and then goes cold and then... And so there's no end to like the answer for safety or happiness. But our problem, as I mentioned last week, is that we immediately go to some conclusion, like an answer, I'll get myself a wood stove or I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it through this class and then I'm gonna get home and under my covers and you know, turn the TV on or whatever, you know, whatever will work for us, hot tea. But if we can just hang out with the uneasiness, that's called inquiry. It's like we're not interested in a set answer or we're not in interested in how the mind answers the question. We're interested in the feeling of the question itself, the mystery, the not knowing. And it really comes, inquiry has to come out of a kind of humility. Like I mentioned, it's the opposite of arrogance. If we think we already know everything, then we're not going to inquire into anything. 
This is the great thing about dukkha or suffering or stress or just the ordinary oppression and, and difficulty we have as a human being is that if we're honest with ourselves, it really undermines the experience of arrogance, you know, some sense that we know what we're doing. Because on the surface, we can look, you know, and we can say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not as old as that person, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty well off, or I'm, you know, and we can compare ourselves or compare a situation, and we can feel relatively competent in the world. But when we actually open to the experience of stress or suffering or uneasiness or depression or anxiety, it really strips, very quickly strips away any kind of arrogance that we might have. It's the great thing about going on longer retreats or even having a daily sitting practice, a really re regular sitting practice is unavoidably we start to see things about our mind, about our emotional patterns. We, we just notice things in, in such a detailed way that it's really hard to maintain a kind of arrogant notion of ourselves as being together or as being uh, together in the sense like knowing something about happiness. It actually, what the practice is mostly, at least in the beginning, is it makes us understand how little we understand this thing called safety or happiness, security. We're so busy, I mean it's the greatest paradox of all or not paradox, it's the greatest irony of all, which is we're running so fast toward happiness, toward safety, that we don't realize how little we know and how ineffective so many of our strategies are to be happy or to be safe. So last week I went through a set of questions, you know, why am I here, why well, I want to be happy. Well, if we don't just rush to an answer, you know, oh, I'm going to be happy by doing this, if we really just feel the, the uneasiness, we might have a insight into the experience of dukkha or suffering or stress. What is this uneasiness? What is this self who wants to be happy? Right? The only kind of self that wants to be happy is a self that's not happy. So what is the experience of being unhappy, of being uneasy, of being discontent? What is that experience? And so we start to unpack it. And it's at this point, you know, the Buddha has this wonderful little saying where he says, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So we need to be at this point where there's a choice. Both, though, include suffering. So sitting, inquiring into the experience of suffering is suffering. It's unpleasant. But if we just run from suffering, that's also suffering. Like if we run towards something that we think is going to eliminate the suffering, like some distraction, then that's suffering that leads to suffering. If we take the path of inquiry, of humility, well, what is this experience of suffering? Then this is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And this is uh, Ajahn Chah said something like this to Jack Kornfield. It's a famous quote. Jack Kornfield is one of the better known Vipassana teachers here in the West. And 
he, as a young man, studied with Achen Cha. He ordained and became a Buddhist monk for about five years, I think. And when he first arrived at the monastery, the first thing this great, well-known teacher said to Jack Kornfield is, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. <laughs> so Jack Kornfield said, what do you mean? <laughs> and then Ajahn Chah said, you know, basically said this same teaching from the Buddha. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that you run from, which follows you everywhere. That sounds familiar, right? You know, no matter how many successful distractions, let alone the unsuccessful distractions, but no matter how many successful distractions we're able to engage in, there's, there is this monster following us, a shadow, to any kind of activity that's based you know, on distracting ourselves from our anxiety or pain or exhaustion, you know, all the things we run from in our lives, our loneliness. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that you run from, which follows you everywhere, and the suffering that you are willing to turn and face and thereby find the liberation that the Buddha taught for all, for us all. Another time the Buddha says, the desire for a resting place is burning. Right? This is, again, pointing out that choice. And this is a good place, I mean, to really hear this so that you can then see this moments in moments of your life, to be vividly clear of this choice. So when the sense of self is seeking a resting place, it's very easy, of course, to want to take that. You know, whatever that resting place is, like for me, you know, having a big bowl of food is a kind of resting place that doesn't actually provide much rest. And you probably all have your own, and uh, I have my you know, whole set. It's not just that one, of course. So, we, uh, and so we're constantly seeking a resting place. And the Buddha says, this is burning. Needing a resting place is itself burning. But we're so busy, of course, seeking a resting place that we don't really catch how much it's burning. So this choice is like, you know, we're teetering here. Because of our habit energy, there's a lot of momentum. You know, it's like a, a deeply cut groove to go towards some resting place, depending on how we've been conditioned. Some kind of favorite distraction or denial or whatever. Self-hatred is also for some of us, a resting place. It's like, I'll just dwell in self-hatred because it gives me a sense of security. I know who I am. I'm the person who I hate. And, <laughs> you know, we, we can dwell there. Or we hate another person. You know, we dwell in resentment toward another. That's another resting place. So they're not just pleasant things like eating a big bowl of pasta, which, of course, isn't really that pleasant after, you know, so many bites. Then, <laughs> then it's just sort of like a, a dulling out. It's not even pleasant after a certain point. So we can notice that teetering point drawn to the arresting place and at some point in our practice realizing that there's another possibility, which is to be interested in this teetering place. Like we're, we're inquiring into the experience of being this being in this teetering place where we're inclined to go here, but there's some budding 
wisdom that's suggesting maybe not, maybe that's not the place. So we're sort of in this kind of funny place where there's uneasiness. This is the suffering, right? It's unpleasant here, but this is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And the only thing that keeps us here is inquiry. It's why it's so valuable to pay attention, to be interested is what keeps us here. As soon as the interest wanes, we'll fall away into habit energy. And because habit energy is habit energy, it's what has the momentum. As soon as we're somewhat unconscious, then it just takes over our life. We become nothing more than our habit energy, the sort of movement of habit energy. And so the reason this this teetering point is uh, painful is because the interest is resisting, the interest in this moment, in the experience of this moment, is resisting the flow of habit energy. Of course, when we don't have those kind of habit energies, the practice gets a lot easier. But mostly in the beginning, we have a lot of habit energies towards distraction, towards denial, towards reactivity. So to stay awake, to be uh, interested in the present moment, means there's some friction because the habit is to just flow into habit. So to not flow into habit requires resistance, requires a real commitment, a wholeheartedness. And I'm sure you've noticed that. You know, you might get a little bit of calm like in the first few minutes of the sit, but then it's like after a while, when you're feeling somewhat, you know, calm, it's just so easy to start, you know, just going through the file of whatever drama you want to revisit or painful memory or exciting future or, you know, we just, we're kind of in our habit energy. And to stay present with the body or with the breath or with the movement of thought is not easy at all. And the only thing that will do that for us is to maintain an interest. And this is really the core. In a way, there's two things that uh, get a human being onto the spiritual path. There's, they discover in their mind some intention of compassion for themselves or others. You know, Sometimes we get on the spiritual path because we see the destruction we're creating for others. You know, it's not even our own suffering as much as we realize how much we're hurting others. There's some intention, some like breeze of wisdom of like recognizing compassion as a wholesome, beautiful thing. And that's, that's not even enough, I don't think. We also need some sense of honesty, self-honesty, like uh, I guess you could, we could call this truth-seeking. Because compassion, just that sort of impulse to be compassionate, doesn't work if it doesn't have some kind of cutting capacity to kind of get through the superficiality of our minds, you know, just the, just the force of habit. We have to start going below the surface of our habit energy. And that that sort of cutting 
needs to be driven by the intention of compassion, right? It has to be coming out of a wholesome intention. But we need the right tool, and the right tool is this truth-seeking, or this honesty, or this inquiry, we could say. So we really need both. We need the, the appropriate intention, which is that we care about this life, or we care about others. And we have to stumble upon this really valuable tool, which is to want to know the truth, to be interested in the truth. Which means, and the reason this tool is so rare is it means we have to be suspicious of the, the sort of status quo, you know, that the mind keeps dishing out to us, or this is how it is. You know, it's like we want, we have to want to know the truth in a direct, immediate way, not sort of what we just assume is how it is. And we, this plays out all the time in our sit. So every time we've been distracted and we notice we're distracted, we come back to the body, we come back to the breath, it's the same thing with the breath. Like to bring that attitude of real truth-seeking, so as the mind opens to the breath, we have to cut through all of the habit that's saying, oh, I know the breath, you know, and the mind dishes out some concept. The breath is like this. This is the breath. But to actually feel the touching as the air is coming in the nostrils, or to feel the belly expand or contract, to be actually interested in that is, uh, it's like, not so easy. It's not so easy to cultivate a taste or a respect for that spirit of inquiry or truth-seeking. And it's really uh, the word we use in Buddhist practice is dhamma, which refer, in this case would refer to things as they are. It's like a taste or an interest in things as they actually are, not our previous conceptions of things, not what we've been told or taught, but what is the direct, immediate experience of things. So that you know, and Buddha made a big deal about this, so we become independent. Like we're not dependent on anybody else's teachings, but our experience of Dhamma, the way it is, is independent. And you'll see, as we go through this inquiry, you see how important that truth-seeking is, because, you know, once we understand that first teetering point, you know, where running from dukkha, being interested in dukkha, running from stress, being interested in stress or uneasiness. Then, So then let's say we go here and we bring some truth-seeking to the experience of being an uneasy human being, being uh, a being that wants something like happiness or wants safety or wants security or wants to belong, to feel loved. So we're, and we're just really being interested in that feeling like of lacking. Like what is in the way of ease now, where there's this this neediness, this wanting, this fear, anxiety. So we're looking at that. And then the question arises, well what what is this? What is like uh, what is this uneasiness in its essence? What's always there when there's this uneasiness? You know, and the, 
you, these are just going to be words. But what we want is the actual visceral, direct seeing of this, you know. And the words like tanha, or craving, or clinging, or grasping, or attachment, or identification. But there's some kind of constriction or holding that we see sort of at the essence of all the various kinds of suffering or stress or discontentments that we've ever experienced. In a way, we say they all taste the same. Even though suffering from the loss of a relationship versus, you know, the, the pain you have when you look in the mirror and you see, my God, I'm not a young person anymore, or something like that. Those are very different. But the, the essence of the disturbance is the same. It has the same flavor. And so then the question, when we, when we inquire into that, then the question arises, you know, how does this attachment or clinging or grasping come to be, or how can it be abandoned? What, what is it, what are the causes and conditions that support the heart being attached or identified or clinging? And this is like a, a place we have to, this is like a lot of dukkha here. Like to see the mind, it's not a snake. And the difference here is that what, what we realize in that moment is it never was a snake. And this is how it is for us with the, the development of this insight. It's like things seem personally, things seem personally, things seem personally, you know, 10 billion times through our lives, personally. But then when the mind is in balance and we're really calm and patient with whatever's going on, and then something afflictive arises, like doubt arises in the mind, and we see the emotion of doubt and we see the taking it personally. And when we see that, it's like what was always taken to be, I have doubt, is not seen that way. Doubt is seen as an impersonal happening. The emotion of doubt, the pain in the body, whatever it is, it's seen for just what it is. It's just an emotion or it's just a sensation. It's just a thought. Because we're not confusing the habit of taking it personally with the experience of pain, whether it's emotional or physical pain. And once it's seen independently, it's like we're not confused by it again, if we really see it clearly. So then it's like, well, I know it's just a rope. It doesn't matter if I see it in the dusk, you know, because I won't, I know that's just a rope. That's just doubt. That's just a thought. This is where the inquiry takes us. It's like we, um, the basic problem that allows for taking life personally, taking our experience personally, is that we misperceive our experience. We're just not seeing it clearly enough. It's like we're living in dusk or dawn. There's not a lot of light, meaning we haven't cultivated a calm and clear presence. And so, especially in terms of the mental activity, we're a bit in a fog. And so, because this habit of taking it personally has been set in motion, it's like once a habit gets set in motion, it's really easy to repeat it. And we've repeated it so many times. And if you buy into multiple lifetimes, 
you, there's like an infinite number of times we've repeated this, taking the mind, taking the content of the mind, taking the emotions, and taking the body personally. So then the question is, well, how do we correct the misperception? Well, now it's pretty obvious. Well, as we get a sense of what's going on, that the basic problem is misperceiving, then the basic solution is to not misperceive anymore, which is to cultivate awareness, to cultivate a clear, uh, a clear, unshakable presence in the midst of experience. So, you know, this is uh, a lifelong, maybe multiple lifelong uh, journey of developing the mental tendencies or habits to be unflappable in the face of experience. I mean, imagine, it's, and it's, I think it's useful to use our imagination, you know, imagine having a, uh, uh, this kind of presence that is really not capable of being surprised. Like anything could happen, and it would just be something being known. You know, like the worst thing could happen or the best thing could happen. And it's not that there wouldn't be a response, the heart wouldn't response, respond with glee if it's something wonderful, or sadness or loss if it's something painful or difficult. But there would be no sort of secondary reverberation. So, you know, if somebody just keeled over and died right now, we see that, and there would be a conditioned response. Everyone in this room would have a conditioned response to seeing somebody keel over. You know, some people might feel really sad. Some people might feel really afraid. Some people might want to, you know, like really want to do something, you know. Find their wallet, find their next of kin, you know, something like that. So, like, the, everyone will have their sort of conditioned response to a crisis. But the question would be, does our heart, out of habit, create ex something extra, something unnecessary? Because... Well, when there's that conditioned response, that can be just known as a conditioned response. Well, this is how it is. And if it seems as that inclination, you know, because that inclination we can't control. Our mind is already conditioned a particular way. So when that arises, if it's skillful, we bring it into action. If it's not skillful, we just see that it's not skillful. But we don't need to go any further in the sense of like, uh, you know, often when something big happens, it's like we create froth. We sort of stir it up, think about it, talk about it with someone else. And it's like we're, because we think it's big, we have to make it big. But imagine not thinking anything's bigger than anything else. Somebody not falling over and dying is really just one thing, and somebody falling over and dying is just another thing. And when someone doesn't fall over and die, there's also a response to that, which is just to let everything be. 
And when someone does fall over and die, then there's another response that's required. But all of that can happen without the extra stuff, without the froth. And so this is the, you know, the path is really to cultivate the kind of presence that's unflappable or unshakable. Like the Buddha calls this the unshakable release of the heart. The heart that doesn't depend on conditions being any particular way. The heart that isn't afraid of letting the conditioned response be the conditioned response. And sometimes our conditioned habit response is skillful and sometimes it's unskillful. But being enlightened or being free doesn't mean we don't have unskillful habits. It just means we're not confused by them. So when an unskillful habit arises, it's seen clearly. Oh, this is an unskillful habit. And it's like this. So I'll leave it here. Well, next week I'll kind of take it from inquiry to like specific, more specific meditation techniques and how they relate to the spirit of inquiry that I think is at the basis of the Buddhist teachings. But I'll leave it here. Maybe people have some stories from your own practice, your own life about inquiry, about just sort of following your nose and not accepting the pat answers that the mind provides and what came of that. Or any questions about the talk tonight? Anything come to mind? So that, that's, I would call, like, if you're doing that in the moment, let's say something comes up that feels really personal, like, uh, you know, your neighbor starts doing something that really seems to change the atmosphere in your backyard, you know, and <clears throat> you notice your, the inclination is out of habit is to take it really personally. But then you do that kind of reflection. So I call this inquiry where you're noticing that, and you're suspicious of the tendency to take it personally. You're teetering there. It'd be very easy for you to take it personally and to write your city council person and this and that. But you're teetering there, and you're suspicious of that, the force of that habit, just to take it personally, to make him bad and you good, and on and on like that. So then you do this inquiry where you kind of open your mind. You know, you're, instead of just following the habit, you open your mind, and you're skillfully bringing in other facts like, well, a lot of things happen to people that they don't like, you know. Businesses move in that they didn't know were going to move in, or the neighbors they love leave and new neighbors move, or the city decides to build an incinerator, or, you know, all kinds of things like that happen. So, so what we're doing here is we're normalizing the experience of feeling cheated, or normalizing the experience of not being in control. Thought we are in control. So that can be really helpful. I mean, when people get sick, this is, can be a really useful thing, is to realize, my God, there's two people in the hospital room next to me there, and, there's, and then there's eight floors to this hospital, and there's, and there's how many hospitals in this metropolitan area, and there's all those people who can't afford to be in the hospital. And just to see that, 
and it's a it's one way. There are many ways, but it's one way of of kind of chipping away at the facade of that habit of taking things personally. But there are many ways. Some involve a lot of thinking, like this way does. But that doesn't mean it's not useful. And it may be all we can do at times. But there's also a more direct way, which is sort of what I was describing, which is more hard to understand. It's, it's hard to understand until you actually kind of have that insight. So it's more like creating a model that may someday make sense when you see an emotion arising and the inclination to take it personally, and you see those two things separately. So you don't need to put them together. The emotion doesn't have to be personal. There's a choice there. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's there because of causes and conditions. None of which. The 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 thing is, what you see in the experience is that that what's arising isn't coming from any center. It's not, there's not a Mary, like a control center somewhere that is sort of have, deciding to be angry. You know, that these are just the natural, it's the natural unfolding of causes and conditions. It is in no way personal, coming from some permanent self or some center. As we superficially imagine, like when we're angry, we superficially assume that somewhere at headquarters, there was some group decision, you know, all the little minions. I was uh, reading a quote from, I think his name is Varello. He's died recently. He's a famous scientist and, and Buddhist and did a lot of the neuro research. And he describes, you know, I'm looking at the neurons and how independent each neuron is. And he called them a squadron of simpletons, which I think is very kind of... But together they give the semblance of like, well, somebody's making this all happen. But it's really just causes and conditions. And, you know, you can talk about it in terms of, you know, the genetic code and, you, and the environmental effect of our parents and the culture that we grew up in. And all of that somehow is a system. But just because it's a complex system doesn't make it a self. The weather's a complex system. But it's not a self. I mean, we all, I think, conventionally agree that the weather is not a self, even though we sometimes draw clouds like it's a guy blowing. Or, but we know the weather isn't a self. You know, at least we, we think we know that. And so we can, we can see the complexity of the mind in the same way. It's as much nature as anything. And this is something, now these are all just intellectual models, but when we cultivate the stability of attention, we actually start to notice the impersonality of what's moving in the mind or moving in the body. And uh, it's transforming. It's much harder to for those strong habit energies. They just lose some of their force. It's a real chipping away at the momentum of taking things personally every time we have a little insight into the actual nature of thought or emotion or sensation. Yeah, Tom.
Yeah, it's a that's a tricky question, and I would I would uh, not use that language because in some ways we, in a conventional sense, we are absolutely responsible for what's arising in our heart, what's arising in our field of experience. Yeah. So we are responsible in the sense that if we are taking something personally, then in a way. Uh, the karmic effect is going to land with this perceived sense of self. It kind of creates some glue. Because if so, when we're in this world of this and that, me and you, then we are responsible for what's arising. In an absolute or ultimate sense, it's all nature. But we're not living in that place. We're living in this place where there's this and that, me and you. And so then we are responsible for it arises in the sense that if anger arises in our heart and we're identified with anger, it's me who's angry, then because the mind is identified with the anger, it's going to be identified with the fruit of the anger. Right. But then... But the... Well, it's it's. I I think I think the reason why it's difficult is just because we're talking at different levels of understanding, and as human beings, we exist at different places at different times. Sometimes, and we should all know this. Sometimes we are no more than an animal, in the, in terms of the sort of uh, sort of clarity and breadth of our understanding. We are no different than you know other mammals. You know, we're just in this sort of survival mode. And other times, you know, there's some space in the mind, there's some perspective, there's some capacity to empathize and to put ourselves in other people's, understand things from other perspectives. And sometimes I think the understanding is, is much even beyond that sort of uh, empathy with another or with a, a group, but it's even beyond that seeing, really seeing the sort of wholeness of experience, let's call it, of the world. And and so the answer to your question, are we responsible, it sort of depends in a given moment where we're at in that place. Because from this point of view, there's no center to anything, so nobody's responsible for anything. It's just causes and conditions, or as uh, Menindajri, a, a well-known teacher, one of the main teachers of Joseph Goldstein, for example, said, just empty phenomena rolling on. That's the perspective. But uh, so the, the issue of responsibility is, is tricky because some people have insight there and then they start, then their mind is over here later, you know, they're back being a relatively ignorant human being, but they somehow remember one thing from over there, which is nothing matters. There's no responsibility. And so people act out in ways that are really hurtful because they're, they misunderstand the practice. So one of the things that's really emphasized in Buddhism is sila, the ethical conduct, as a, as a container for the practice. So we really commit to non-harming, non-stealing, you know, not uh, causing harm in all the ways through speech or sexual activity. Because 
because if we're enlightened and nothing matters, or it's just empty phenomena rolling on, that's a nice test. Because if it really is empty phenomena rolling on, why do we feel so inclined, you know, to to commit adultery or <laughs> or to steal or to you know whatever sort of unwholesome or unethical behavior that we might be inclined to do? Why does that arise? I mean, that would only arise from a self-centered point of view. If the view is includes everything, we the mind body responds in a way that takes care of everybody as best as possible. It isn't out for itself. It wouldn't harm unless that was the least harmful thing to do. So I'm not saying that an enlightened being wouldn't cause harm, but the intention wouldn't be to harm. The intention would be to take care of. Because where would the intention to harm come from? That's a, that really needs a narrow place to, to steal or to harm. You know, it can't come from a, a broad place. Yeah, great. Yeah, uh, on this whole question, Ajahn Sumedho, I thought, made a point that was really helpful for me. He talked about how we are not our anger. If, if we were, we couldn't be aware of the fact that we are angry. We would just be angry all the time, we wouldn't, but we wouldn't have the awareness of it. And that's an insight, too, that is available to all of us right now. Whenever there's an afflictive state or even an ordinary state, to, to notice the difference between the knowing, don't distinguish the knowing from what's being known. And don't think about this, because, you know, it doesn't make sense in a way when you think about it. Well, how, can you, how could you know the knowing independent of the known? You can't. But intuitively, in the moment, there can be this intuitive understanding that there's anger and the anger is being known. And that somehow knowing itself is stainless, meaning no matter what's known, it doesn't affect the knowing. And that's, that's again, part of this inquiry. Like as we inquire into the mind, that's a more subtle end of the inquiry, but that's where we go, where we're distinguishing the object from the subject, the Buddha from the Dhamma. The Buddha is sort of the word for the ultimate subject, and the Dhamma is the word for the ultimate object, and beginning to see them as two things. And it's really, that's the, the, the direction of insight, is to see those two things, not as one. A couple minutes left, if there are other comments. Yeah, Dave. Just all these questions kind of remind me of uh, something I've been reading out of the Ajahn Chah book, Being Dharma. He talks about it as the enlightened beings are not, uh, it's not that they don't have that stuff that arises, they just are free from that identification as coming from a place of self. And I kept reading over that part because, you know, and for a long time I kind of looked at all these you know, well-known teachers in the tradition as being free, or that they don't have these normal human things, but it's like that they've just, and then it goes back to the story of the Buddha, you know, when he says how we know we are eating, we know we are drinking, it's just that awareness, I think, yeah. is a good way for me to think about it. Yeah, thanks, Ted. Any other experiences or comments people have?
Thanks. Do you know what I mean? So like that may not have been the time and place. That might have been the time and place to call a good friend. Because the time and place to do it is when we can. <laughs> and like part of the practice is knowing when to retreat and no, knowing when to move forward. And sometimes what's arising for us, the, the degree of pain, combined with you know the mental balance is not so good. You know, so it's always like we're always assessing like the degree of what's arising for us in our life, and comparing that with like how nicely imbalanced is the mind or the heart. And if the heart isn't so imbalanced like it is when we're sick, you know, and the mind's foggy to begin with and weak and tired, and what's coming up is really strong, then with whatever feeble mindfulness we have, we discern that this is not the time and place. <laughs> This is the time and place to seek out a relatively wholesome distraction, really. And it might be singing, you know, depending if your throat was sore, or calling a friend, or taking a hot bath, or watching a funny movie that's not going to be reinforcing unwholesome tendencies in your mind. Yeah, there are a few of those. I watch reruns of the Twilight Zone. That sounds like a hell realm to me. But. <laughs> I don't know. We all make our own choices. <laughs> well, except that it would probably would have been engaging, which is nice. But uh, one of the things that I'm getting better at, because you know I have my own sort of things that I'm attracted to that aren't so useful, obviously, but is like to find things that I'm attracted to, but also um, are kind of reinforcing wholesome tendencies. Like, I'm getting pretty good now at finding movies that are really healing for me and beautiful and give me that escape. You know, like I need a break and I'll go see a movie or go rent a movie or something. And, uh, but I'll always, you know, I'll read the review and I'll, because I've had too many times sitting in meditation having bad movies, unskillful movies, replay in my mind over and over again until I can learn to be at ease and peaceful with something that I never should have watched to begin with. <laughs> so, you know, I think we can get better and better at finding wholesome distractions for ourselves. But you have to make a science of it. We make a, a science, you know, put some effort into having a collection of wholesome distractions that we can engage in. Actually, I, I have some, yeah. Well, actually, if anybody's interested, you know, we're kind of finishing up here. 
Um, once you're in the new building, I would love like once every two months for a couple people to organize a Dharma movie night. And uh, so Saturday night, and I don't know, we don't have a big screen, but someone could bring something to watch it on. And in the community room, and there could be, you know, tea and treats and discussion afterwards and about what we learn. Because we learn a lot watching people suffer and make sense of the suffering. And we even make, we even learn watching people suffer and not make sense of it. Like, don't do that. And this is what a lot of movies are about. People suffering and learning from it, and people suffering and not learning from it. And we can, you know, if we talk about it afterwards, I think there can be some real value in it. So if any, any of you are interested in that, uh, let me know. And hopefully at some point in the next year, somebody will, a couple of people will be willing to take that on. It could start really uh, just, you know, once a quarter even would be fine and uh, get a group of people to brainstorm movies and then would need a committee to be the censor. <laughs> so maybe that's what you want to volunteer, to be the censor. And you'd be anonymous, of course. So let's just take a moment and let go of the words. Take a couple of breaths. It's always useful, I think, to appreciate these ancient and still very pragmatic teachings and to be grateful for all the men and women who have done their practice over the centuries and shared what they have learned. Somehow, magically, almost, it appears here in the corner of 34th Avenue and 26th Street, and we get to tap into this wisdom stream. And this can inspire us to do the best we can to cultivate clarity, forgiveness, and patience, all the wholesome qualities that support wisdom and compassion and allow us to be part of what gets to pass on these teachings to the next generation. So may this be so. Thanks, everyone. A couple of announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.